Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us about grace in Jesus' name. Amen. My grandpa was a real cowboy. He actually rode the range in Nebraska in the early 1900s. Now, by the time I came along, he had married my grandma, whose parents owned the Chrisanna Dairy in southeast Denver. Now, shortly after World War II, the dairy closed to make way for all of the suburbs that were growing. And my grandpa went to work for Stern's Dairy. He was the guy who came by bright and early in the morning, like before the sun rose, and he would put the milk in that little box right on your front porch, along with other things. Yeah, it was a far cry from his ranching days. However, my grandma's brother, Uncle Earl, he owned a couple thousand acres of wheat out in Parker. And so on the weekends, my grandpa got to go out and get his cowboy on again. They had a little summer cabin in Fraser. It's near Winter Park up in the mountains of Colorado. It had an outhouse, no shower, no bathtub, a single water spout in the kitchen, which, by the way, drained into the daisies and froze up the day it hit 32 degrees. Up the road was a pond in the middle of the sawmill. Had great fishing, but you had to have permission, and my grandpa had permission. There really wasn't much else to do in Fraser in those days. And when you are 10 years old and have no TV, limited comic books because they were 25 cents a piece, and of course, no friends, you get bored. We'd spend weeks up there during the summer. However, there were shelves full of Louis L'Amour and Max brand books. These are um, well, spaghetti westerns or romantic westerns. Not so much on the romance side, but just I think you get what I mean. Uh, Louis wrote over 100 books. Max, over 300 books. One summer I started reading them because, to be bluntly honest, there was nothing else to do. After a few books, I realized they were the exact same story, just the names had been changed, a lot like the Hallmark movies. Good guy, bad guy, damsel in distress. It was a formula that people must love, though, because Max and Louis together sold over 500 million books. You know, when you were 10... You wonder why anybody would buy and read a book where they already knew how it was going to end. The good guys always wore white hats, the bad guys black hats, and the, ghoul, the girl was always the school marm. Right was right, wrong was wrong, and at the end of the book, right always triumphed, evil was defeated, and the cowboy and the girl rode off into the sunset. It really made no sense to me until I was in my 20s. Every generation longs for the good old days, even though the people in those days that this generation is longing for, they also longed for the good old days which weren't their days. We may not always agree on what is good and what isn't, but most of us have a strong desire to see good win and evil be defeated. And when it doesn't happen our way, we start to ask questions and look for answers. The book of Revelation is not the first or only place where God declares good wins and evil is defeated. The cowboy gets the girl and together they ride off into the sunset. That theme runs throughout the entire Bible, starting, by the way, in Genesis chapter 3, where God tells Adam and Eve that the tricky serpent, you know, the one that got Eve to eat the apple and then Adam, okay, that tricky serpent is going to strike the heel of the coming Savior. But the Savior is going to smash the head of the tricky serpent. It doesn't take too much imagination to see the difference between a heel bite and a smashed head. The Savior will be wounded. The evil serpent will be dead. In our gospel, Jesus is hanging out in the Jerusalem temple. Now, this is where the Pharisees and Sadducees ran the entire church from. This one, it, 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 there's a really big difference, though, between the Pharisees and Sadducees. See, Pharisees believe in heaven. 
Sadducees don't. How the two got along, I don't understand. I'm also not sure about a religion that says that when you die, you're dead, and that's all, folks. Uh, but the Sadducees had quite a few followers. So somebody must see something that I don't. Now, Jesus, the uncredentialed rabbi with the rabble of disciples, had been a thorn in the side of the religious establishment for almost three years at this point. It didn't help when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and all the crowds were taking off their jackets and ripping down palm branches and laying them out in the road and shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, save us, Lord. You see, nobody had ever thrown a parade for the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus then went to the temple, which, to be honest, resembled a flea market more than a house of prayer. Turns over tables, chases people out with a whip while shouting, how dare you turn my father's house of prayer? into a den of thieves. He leaves the temple, heads to Bethany to visit Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, his old friends. And in a head-scratching moment on his way back to the temple, he stops and curses a fig tree whose only sin was not having any fruit on it, even though it was fruit season. Fig tree dies, everybody wonders what this means. It turns out that, by the way, what was happening there was a parable without any of the words. It was in real time. In last week's gospel, Jesus was in the temple teaching when the leader showed up and demanded to know where he got his authority. Now, when they refused to answer his question uh, about John the Baptist's authority and baptism, he decides to start telling parables in order to give them a little clue about who he is. And maybe they'll figure out where his authority comes from. Now, this parable is about some wicked renters who beat, kill, and stone the owner's servants. And all the owner's servants did was come to collect the rent, which you know, the people renting it had agreed to pay. Then they kill his son. They toss all the bodies out of the vineyard and they put up a big sign that says, under new ownership. Jesus asked the leaders of the church, so what will the real owner of the vineyard do? And they respond, he will come and slaughter those evil renters and take back the vineyard for himself. And even as the words came out of their mouth, they realized that the whole parable was really about them. It's the words when the chief priests and Pharisees heard this parables, they knew he was speaking about them. That's the part that really strikes home today. So what do you think? Did those church leaders not only know the parable was about them, but they had stolen God's vineyard, they had killed and maimed his prophets, and in just a few days were actually going to put God's son to death? How much did they really understand about what they had done and what they were doing? And by the way, if they did understand... Weren't they afraid of God and what he might do? So here's the big question for you and me. Do we believe in God? Do we believe in heaven? What exactly do we believe? You see, I believe in a lot of things, but, but the question of how much I believe and the specifics of what I believe are actually far more important because there are a lot of differing degrees of belief. If the Pharisees believed in heaven and in God and were waiting for the Messiah and saw Jesus do all the things that Jesus did, which, by the way, lined up perfectly with um, Isaiah 7, 9, 11, 40, and 42, Hosea 11, Isaiah 53, Micah 5, and, and a whole bunch of other versions and, and, and verses in the Bible, then, then why didn't they become followers of Jesus? I mean, they sacrificed the very thing they had spent their entire life waiting for. And if in the back of their minds there was even the smallest inkling that Jesus was really the Messiah, what did they think that they were going to gain by crucifying him? The Sadducees, 
because they believed in God, but did not believe in heaven. For them, if this life is all there is, then they lose nothing by crucifying Jesus. In chaotic times, people do good, bad, and ugly things. But then again, people are always doing good, bad, and, uh, good, bad, and ugly things. And as much as we would like to blame the various cultural, ethnic, and religious crises brought on by Rome's occupation and the whole King Herod and Pontius Pilate issues for, for Israel's problems, the Old Testament says it really wasn't all that different even when Israel was governing itself. <sighs> they may have been a theocracy. That, that means governed by God. But there was always an evil king on the throne or a plot against the faithful king. And I guarantee a whole bunch of damsels in distress. A lot of people assume believers are suddenly and completely transformed into holy instruments of God the moment that they come to faith. But the only reason they think that is because they've actually never read the Bible. Because if they had, well, they would see Moses' rebellion, Elijah's depression, Abraham's unfaithfulness, Gideon's uncertainty, David's adultery, Solomon's spiritual wanderings, all of which, by the way, came about after God had taken them and made them into leaders of his people. See, God didn't wait until somebody became perfect, nor did God expect them to be perfect or remain perfect. God took the unholy and the unwashed, and he made them symbols of grace in order to bring about his work and his will. There's an important lesson there. In truth, there is no such thing as holy and unholy people. We're all unholy. The real difference is that God in his mercy and grace has begun to work in the lives of those who didn't reject him, replacing the unholiness with his holiness. Does that, does that make sense? See, God works in the lives of those who do not reject him. It's not about saying yes to God. It's just about not saying no. When you take communion, what you are professing is, is a mystery of the highest order. God empties you of your sins and then fills you up with himself. It's why Jesus in John 6 said, well, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no life in you. This wasn't some crazy cannibalistic TikTok challenge. It was a simple offer to be emptied of all your sin, all your pain, all your problems, and then filled up with the righteousness and the love and the glory of Jesus. St. Paul said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's this amazing infusion of God's grace. The final words of the gospel last week were actually very interesting. Jesus told the Pharisees, I assure you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. Not instead of you, but before you. See, it turns out Jesus loves all the children of the world, not just fishermen, tax collectors, and prostitutes, but also Pharisees and Sadducees. Yeah, did you hear that? Jesus actually loves the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he gives everyone a chance to figure out they don't have what it takes to be perfect, and then he lays out this amazing promise of grace, and all you have to do is not say no. Back to the Pharisees and Sadducees. Well, really just the Pharisees, because since the Sadducees don't believe in heaven, they also don't believe in hell, so they just become bystanders of this conversation. And Jesus appeals to the Pharisees. He, he's giving them a chance to deal with their guilt. This is the whole Psalm 51 sins and iniquities thing. The distinction between guilt and shame is guilt comes from what I do. Shame comes from what I think I am. Guilt can lead to repentance and change. Shame immobilizes me and often pushes me to hurt myself and, and hurt others. 
When Jesus says, so what do you think the owner is going to do to those lousy renters? The, the Pharisees have the chance to say, well, hopefully the renters will reflect on their sinful life. They will repent and they will ask the owner of the vineyard to have mercy on them. But instead they say, he will destroy them. I always wondered what those words tasted like as they spoke them. If one of the things you believe about God is that you cannot lie to him because he knows all things, then you embrace the truth. Not your truth or the world's truth, but God's truth. Because you recognize that no matter what you say, God knows what you're really thinking and feeling. And yeah. And this is where the difference between the Pharisees and Sadducees come into play. You see, the Sadducees can't be threatened. This life is all they have. So anything Jesus says is going to go in one ear and right out the other. The Pharisees, at least in theory, believe in a heaven and a hell. And so when Jesus tells these parables, he's trying to get their attention and accept God's truth in a way that doesn't directly threaten them. The parable is about a vineyard, an owner, and some renters, which is a far cry from pointing his finger and talking about a temple God and a bunch of evil Pharisees. You see, Jesus is offering redemption in real time. He could have walked away and let them die in their sins. And by the way, the Pharisees admitted that they deserved it. But as our Old Testament lesson said last week, God doesn't want even one person to be lost for eternity. And so right there, Jesus lays it all out, telling them the story and letting them come to the only natural and logical conclusion. Now, the Pharisees, with the Sadducees listening in, have the chance to say, you know, reflecting on our sinful life, we realize that we haven't done what we were supposed to do, and we're going to ask God to have mercy on us. Think about all the vineyards in our own life that we kicked God out of. Relationships, jobs, family, money, careers, things that God gave to us and wanted us to use to make a difference in our life, the life of our family, our neighborhood, our community, our nation, and our world. But instead, we threw him out, and we put up an under-new ownership sign. Maybe what we're doing isn't as violent or bloody as the parable, but the result is the same. A world torn apart and upside down and full of pain and hurt because we decided that we owned our life. We owned everything around us, not God. Instead of telling parables, God could just come in and wipe everything out. But for a reason that, to be honest, does not make very much sense to any of us because of the way we treat him. Out of everything in the universe, God has this amazing, holy, and just crazy passion for us. He says heaven won't be the same without us, which when we think about all that we've said and done to him and to ourselves and everybody else, it, well, it, it's got to be a God thing. And so he tells us stories to help us figure things out. And the ending is not just about us getting right with God because it's actually a much, much bigger picture. As long as we are holed up in our private vineyard with a no trespassing sign out front holding on to all of our fruit, we aren't out there helping a lost and hurting world get found and healed. So it was the spring of 1983. I dropped out of college again because of money issues. Should have been my senior year, and yeah, I only had to, it just took me a couple more years. Turned out, though, it was a gift from God. I got to spend a lot of time with my grandpa. We talked about riding the range and sleeping under the stars and rattlesnakes and cattle stampedes and going into town on Saturday night. We talked about Louis L'Amour and Max Brand books. He missed those days. He missed them a lot. When right was right, wrong was wrong, and a handshake was good enough for any deal. He knew God was going to fix everything one day. 
And he was willing to be patient with God because after all, God had been very, very patient with him. Grandpa didn't have to wait much longer for God to fix things. He died during Holy Week and we actually buried him on Holy Saturday, the day between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. That was when I finally understood why people would buy book after book even though they were the exact same story. We are a forgetful people and we constantly need to be reminded that God loves us, that he's making all things new, that good already won when Jesus died on the cross and rose again three days later. You see, in the Holy Week of 1983, as I buried my grandpa on Saturday and came to church on Easter Sunday, I saw the story of Jesus for what it really was, even though the story had been told over and over again for thousands of years. See, it wasn't really Jesus healed that the serpent bruised. No, it, it, it was his head crowned with thorns. It was his hands and feet nailed to the cross. It was his insides ripped open by a spear. Satan did his worst. But you know, you can't stop God when he's in the mood to love his people and save them. And the reason it's taking so long for the end of the story so that we can all ride off into the sunset is it turns out even after you crush the head of a serpent, the body doesn't know it's dead and it continues to wriggle around looking all terrible and menacing. See, that doesn't change the fact that the serpent is dead. It just looks really, really scary as he wiggles and sometimes we get confused. Max Brand and Louis L'Amour didn't invent the whole good guy, bad guy, damsel in distress genre. God did. After all, we, the church, are the bride of Christ, and we have definitely put ourselves in distress. And don't forget the book of Revelation says that Jesus is going to come riding in on, of all things, a white horse when he returns, when good finally wins, which it already has, but then evil has lost and evil will be no more. And maybe there is something to knowing how the story ends. It's to give us the patience, the strength, and the courage to turn the page after page of our own life. And even in the scariest, the most painful, and the hardest moments, know that it's all going to turn out okay. And we will get to ride off into the sunset, the very last sunset, as we go into heaven and spend eternity. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.